take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 23. I'm, I'm sort of sad. This is the last Sunday that we'll be looking at, at Psalm 23. It's, it's been such a, a good study. So let us hear now God's Word this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word and, and for this encouraging song. Lord, just to remind us of your great work in, in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would use this time this morning as we uh, sit at your feet to hear your words spoken to us. God, not just to add to the knowledge that we have in our head, but to stir our hearts to, to love and to know you. Father, as we said early in the series, uh, our goal has not been so much to teach new things as much for us just to live according to those things that we already know about this song. And so please, we pray that you would use this to bring glory to your name today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I do have to say it's, it's been a joy over the last six weeks to, to be studying this psalm and to spend time with Calvin and, and Dr. Boyce and, and Joel Beakey and, and uh, Ian Hamilton and, and others. And I'm especially uh, indebted to Ian Hamilton this morning for a lot of the insights I'm sharing with you today. But it's just been good to, to reflect on this psalm and to hear what other men uh, have to say and, and to gain their insights. But have you, have you ever wondered about why Psalm 23 is, is so loved by believers? I mean, there, probably if we went around the room and asked you, why, why does it mean so much to you? We'd probably get a whole host and variety of answers. But I think one of the reasons is simply but gloriously that it takes us to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes us to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. Do you remember when we first started this series, I encouraged you as households to memorize this psalm as we were going through this series. And I said, you know, it's not long, so you can memorize it. But if your kids are little, then just memorize the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And if you feel like your kids are itty-bitty little and it's too much for them, then just even memorize that first part. The Lord is my shepherd. Because in that is the beautiful essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what a glorious truth. I mean, do you hear what we're saying? That the Lord, the everlasting God, is the, the God of glory. Jehovah himself is my shepherd. Paul instructs the, the Christians at Rome in Romans chapter three or 12, verse 3, do not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Which, you know what that tells you? 
If Paul is writing that to the church, then that means even we as Christians can be pretty full of ourselves. And he's telling us not to do that. You know, because we can. We can be very arrogant. But when we think more, and, and the reason why that's so important is, is that the more highly that we think of ourselves, then typically that means that we're thinking more lowly of God. And, and in the same way, when we think more highly of God, then we think more humbly of ourselves. And, and as we come to our text today, and as we are thinking as, as humbly as, as sinners, then, then we, and that we have no right to live in the presence of the true and the holy God, then we can see the reality of that phrase, how awesome that is, that the Lord is my shepherd. But if we come this morning too full of ourselves, then we may be tempted to think, well, of course the Lord's my shepherd. Shouldn't he be? I mean, shouldn't he be happy to have me? Sometimes we can approach the Lord that way. And we miss the beauty of the good news that through Jesus Christ, God comes to bring us into his sheepfold to make us his people that we might know him to be our God that we are pursued in love, that we might live in relation with Him. Amen? Even Presbyterians ought to say amen about that, right? That is just so amazing that God has done that. And brothers and sisters, I pray that the words, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, humbles you and brings you low this morning. And yet at the same time, uh, warms your heart and encourages you as you think of that. And that's why I think Psalm 23 has such a warm place in the hearts of, of so many believers because it reminds us of the essence of the life of faith as a result of what Christ has done for us. And you'll never understand Psalm 23 until you see that, that David is writing, if I might use the language of the New Testament, as a saved man. Okay? That he is writing as a man who has been by nature a wanderer. He has been a disobedient, rebellious sheep, but who in the mercy of God has come to find mercy and pardon and restoration and shelter within the sheepfold of the divine shepherd. And so David writes like he does in Psalm 23 because he has received the great salvation of God. And so he writes with a heart of great gratitude. And, and really, if you think about it, that's what the Bible's all about. You know, God in, in Christ Jesus has found a way to justify the ungodly, to, to deliver us from death and hell, and to bring us at last to his glorious presence. And David has experienced all of this, and, and I hope that we have as well this morning. I mean, I think it's just really interesting as we come to this last verse of Psalm 23, how appropriate that we're coming to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, to be reminded and to celebrate what Christ has done for His people and how Christ has laid down His life for His sheep. And so as we, as we come to this psalm, I, I really, I don't have a fancy outline or anything. He just really closes with a couple of statements. And I just, my first point is to look at statement one, and my second point is to look at statement two. Can't get any more simple than that, okay? And so uh, let's, let's look at these two closing statements. First of all, he says, Surely 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, sometimes when we read that, and I think I sort of just read it that way, we make it sort of sound like three things. There's surely, and there's goodness, and there's mercy. And that's really not what he's saying. He's saying, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. In other words, most certainly, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, that word mercy depending on the translation you have. If you have the ESV, it says mercy. If you have the NIV, it, it may say love. There, there's different ways of translating that word. The word is chesed in the Hebrew, and it means God's covenant faithfulness. It means his covenant love. That may even be a better way of saying it. God's covenant love. His pledged love. His undying, blood-sealed love will follow you all the days of your life. And, and when it says follow, even that's probably sort of a weak translation. It's not like you're walking down the street and someone is following you and you think, I think someone's following me. It's not that kind of following. It's actually that person is pursuing you. So like you're walking down the street and they're running after you to catch you. Maybe even a better translation, I don't think this is going too far, I think you could even say it means it hunts you down. Now, usually that has a bad connotation if somebody's hunting you down, but if it is God's goodness and His covenant love that is hunting you down, that's a good thing. And not only that, but it does so all the days of your life. So... It's the idea that it is pursuing us. And he says, and just so you know, that is certain. That is sure. That is really a reality of what's happening. And, and I say that because if David looked at the circumstances of his life and the things that he experienced, he may never have written this if he only looked at his experiences. I mean, you think about uh, previously he was a shepherd, right? Which usually was fell to the youngest, okay, because it was sort of a job nobody wanted to do. I mean, who wants to sit out on, in a pasture under the hot sun for hours and hours and hours and watch these stupid sheep do dumb things and try to corral them and get them to do what they're supposed to do, and they're fighting you the whole time. And not only that, but you have bears and you have lions that are seeking to attack them. And David talks about in Scripture about how he would grab the bear or the lion and he would strike them to protect the sheep. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing it was probably a minimum wage job. And, you know, but yet it just had a lot of responsibility to it. So you look at that and you go, really? That's God's goodness? That's God's mercy? Or you think about the many years that Saul pursued David to kill him and, and all that David went through. Even after God had anointed him king, Saul was seeking to kill him. And then, of course, there's the affair with Bathsheba that... Um, even though David tried to hide it, became public news for, for all to know. And then there was the rebellion of his son Absalom, who took over his kingdom and then sought to kill his father. And so, you know, David could easily look at his life and say, Surely, goodness and covenant love hunt me down my whole life? That doesn't make sense. Or, or people may look at David's life and say, you know, really, it looks like his life in some ways was a sad and a tragic life. And yet that's not how David responds. Uh, he says, most definitely, God's goodness and covenant love 
has pursued me all the days of my life. From womb to tomb, God has faithfully shepherded me. And David can only say that because he believes God and he lives by faith. You see, he has glasses that he can see his life from a certain perspective. He sees it from God's perspective and based upon God's promises. And so he believes in the God who works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. He believes in the God who is able to take David's grossest and his most wicked sins and astonishingly and gloriously pardons them freely by the blood of the Son of Jesus Christ. He sees that. And so he says, certainly goodness and covenant love must follow me all the days of my life. Brothers and sisters, as you look at your life, Sometimes it, it, it's, um, you may think the same thing. Really? Does God's covenant faithfulness and love follow me? You know, sometimes it's only by faith as we take God's promises to heart that we are enabled to say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And there may be people here this morning that need to hear this. Or there may be people on the live stream that need to be reminded of this that you may wonder, how is it that you could have such assurance of faith? And the answer is, you have assurance of faith by not looking at your own life, but looking only to God through Jesus Christ. You look at what Christ has done, and you look not at your own heart. If you look at yourself, your heart will convict you day after day, week after week, year after year. And that's why, if you remember, when we were working our way through the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says to his readers, Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's where your hope is. Matter of fact, let me read the entirety of that verse. He goes, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because we can become weary. We can become faint-hearted in our faith sometimes as we look at the circumstances of our lives. But if we are reminded, as David was, that surely, most definitely, goodness and mercy pursue me all the days of my life. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be careless about our sin, but rather that we, find, uh, that we understand where we find that full assurance. And it's found in Jesus Christ and His perfected work on the cross. So surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It will hunt me down to give us Himself. You see, God's goodness and mercy is pursuing us because what God is giving us, when it says that He gives us that which is good, it means that He is giving us Himself. God doesn't give us forgiveness and the hope of glory. No, He gives us Himself. So it's not just that hope of glory, but He gives us Himself when we trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. God is the good that He gives to us. And we need to remember that. And you'll never understand what Jesus Christ is about until you understand that what God is giving us is Himself. It's important that we grasp this truth 
Because life on this earth can be hard and it can be frustrating and it can even be very disappointing. But when we come to understand that the blessings that God is giving us, the goodness that God is giving us, is not uh, an easy life here on this world, or even that He's going to meet all of our needs as we want them, but rather that God is giving us Himself. And if we keep this in mind, then when difficulties come, then we can keep our bearing, because we know that God never leaves us, nor does He forsake us. He is, he is good always, 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 no matter what the circumstances are. And so we can take that to heart, and that can comfort our soul when we are going through the most difficult times. When our faith is being challenged and stretched beyond our ability, and we think, oh God, what am I going to do about this or that that's happening in my life? He says, I will pursue you with good goodness. But we also need to, to keep this in mind that God is our goodness because of the fact, um, because, um, because it helps us to understand why our sin is so serious as Christians. Um, I, I like the way that in Hamilton, he says it. He says, um, because sin is really taking that which is contrary to God and bringing it into contact with God. You ever think about that? You know, we think about sin as just, you know, we did something wrong. But sin really is taking that which is contrary to God, contrary to His nature, and we are bringing it in contact with God. And so when we see sin that way, we understand it is huge. Even the littlest of our sins is a great offense against God. You are bringing that which would bring God down from His glory and making that part of your life. Too often, Christians, I think, shrug their sin off, saying, oh, it's okay, God will forgive me. You know, sometimes I think even we go into sin thinking, well, I'll just ask God to forgive me when I get to the end, and it'll be all right. It's okay. And we treat our sin very flippantly. We just think, well, it's in the past. It's no big deal, you know. But it is a big deal, brothers and sisters. You know, this, this, this... Anybody that has that attitude that I'll just ask God for forgiveness, it's okay, it's no big deal, they are skating on thin ice. Now, I, I don't want to misrepresent God's character. Yes, the Lord freely forgives. He does, and don't forget that. But we need to learn what a serious thing the least and the littlest of our sins are. And, and I even heard this week that the Puritans used to speak of sin as God-killing Okay, in other words, that is what sin wants to do. It wants to kill God. It wants to do away with God. But brothers and sisters, surely goodness, the good one, and his covenant love pursues us, not most, all the days of our lives. <clears throat> That brings us to the second statement, he says. He says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, that word forever means length of days. Okay? And, and the house of the Lord was the place where God met with His people. 
And, and that's important for us to remember. I mean, we live in a day and time when the Christian faith is often viewed in terms of an individual relationship, right? It's about Jesus and me, or me and Jesus, right? That's really what it's all about. So if I go to church, that's okay. If I don't go to church, that's okay. You know, because it's just really about the two of us. Uh, but uh, interestingly, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, how did he begin? My Father who art in heaven? No, he said, our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. You see, the default for the Christian life is not me and Jesus, but it's really us and Jesus. You know, by faith we are baptized into the community of faith, right? We are brought into the fellowship of His saints. We become the one family of God. And you see, throughout Scripture, there's all this imagery of community, of community, of community. Now, there, there, that's not to say that there's not a personal relationship with God. Because there is. And that was probably Israel's uh, fault. They took this whole thing of community so far that they thought that there was no individual responsibility with God. And uh, they would just talk about, well, God, you've put your blessing on the community, so I can do what I want as an individual. It doesn't go that far. I mean, God, the Bible says that God loved me, and he gave himself for me. There is that personal relationship, but the default of the Christian life is the covenantal and corporate life of, of faith. I mean, you think about even some of the passages that we know very well. Uh, for example, Psalm 122.1. I was glad when they said to me, what? Let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, why am I glad about that? Because it is there that God meets with his people. You know, the, the high day for communion with God is not when you have your personal quiet time throughout the week. It's not even when you gather together as households to worship the Lord. But it is on the Lord's day when we gather for corporate worship. That's the high and the holy day for communion with God. That is where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit meet with their people to bless them. You know, let me just ask you this. I mean, it is... There is nothing, it seems like, uh, that's better than being together with family, right? Now, some of you may come from families that have a whole lot of stuff going on, and you may not see it that way or understand it, but for a typical family, it's, it's good to be together. And I know we've seen that in our kids as they've grown up, and we actually no longer have any kids in our household. Tim turned 18, so now we have nothing but adults. So I guess my wife and I are getting old, but... Anyway, you know, as we get together as a family and all these adults get together, our kids really enjoy being together. Now, that's not to say they don't squabble sometimes. And, that you know, Franks are very opinionated, if you haven't figured that out already, okay? So there could be sparks sometimes, but they really enjoy being together. As a matter of fact, I look at my wife sometimes and I say, you know, when we're dead, I don't even think they're going to know it. I, I think they're just going to still have a good time together. You know, they just love getting together and playing games and talking and... You know, just doing all kinds of stuff. And I can remember when COVID hit, it hit the Franks household hard. You know, our kids were like contacting us. We can't get together. I mean, we get together once a month and have a family day. And our, our kids look forward to that. Our grandkids look forward to that. 
you know, and here they were bemoaning the fact we couldn't get together, and they were sort of going through withdrawals and, and really struggling. But anyway, so, you know, it's the same way with the family of God is the point that I'm trying to make. We are meant to be together, brothers and sisters, and not just together with us, you know, connected horizontally, but then also as we are corporately, not just individually, but corporately connected with Christ vertically as well. And David tells us that we are to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, as I said earlier, that word actually means length of days. It really doesn't in and of itself mean eternity, okay? But, um, but yet that's how it's translated. And I think just about every translation, I didn't check every translation, but I think just about every translation translates it forever. Now, why would you do that if it doesn't necessarily mean eternity, if it just means length of days? Well, the reason is because God's covenant commitment to his people is an unending commitment. Okay, it, it knows no end. When God commits to someone, they are his child forever. And brothers and sisters, I'll just be honest with you, that's why divorce is such an atrocity in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, because marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And, and as in our marriages, we are to show that, we are to reflect that to the world around us. You want to see our marriages and how you take two sinners and you put them in a household and there's sparks and there can be fights and there can be all kinds of tension, but there's also wonderful and glorious times as well. But in the midst of all that, we stay together because of the work that God is doing in our hearts and because it is a picture of God's love for his church. And so when we just throw away a marriage just like that because it doesn't meet our needs or because you know, we're not satisfied anymore. You know, it makes people think around us, oh, that's what God's love is like for his church. But that's not true. And, and, and so because there is that commitment, because he says, surely goodness and covenant love pursues you all the days of your life, it's very appropriate to translate this forever. God's covenant love not only pursues us in this life, but it secures a place for us to dwell with God forever. Now, it's, it's interesting. If you want to do an interesting study, study the afterlife from the Old Testament perspective. And you soon quickly realize that the Old Testament doesn't say a lot about the life to come. You know, it talks about Sheol and some other places, but it doesn't give a lot of insight. But if you look at the New Testament, it does. And even words like Romans 8, uh, verses 38 and 39, very familiar passage, uh, it sort of just shows us that, that unending commitment and love that God has for his people. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing, not even death itself, can separate us. And, and that's the final goal of the life of faith. The life that has walked with the Lord as its heavenly shepherd. The, the, the Christian life that has gone through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, we might think that the goal of such a walk 
is that feast that we talked about last week. In, in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And you might think that God's provision in this life is the ultimate goal of the Christian life, but it's not. God's provision is good, but it's not best. And even this morning, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's not the best, okay? Yes, it does remind us of Christ and what He has done for us as His people. And we do meet with Christ spiritually by faith and are strengthened as we partake of the Lord's Supper, okay? But the best, is when we will see God face to face. And we no longer need signs and symbols like the Lord's table. Instead, we will be in His presence face to face. You know, how, how much better is it? Is it better to be at the top of Pike's Peak and look out over the beauty of God's creation and just, you know, if you're not too dizzy, you know, from being the thin air. But, you know, you're looking at this and you're going, this is gorgeous. Is, is that better? Or is it better to be at the, the foot of Pike's Peak beside the sign that says Pike's Peak this way? You know, now, as, as awesome as the base of Pike's Peak is, it is nothing compared to the glory of the reality. And, and it's the same way uh, with God. One day we will see His face to face. So the ultimate goal is that God will bring us home to be with Him. But, but until then, he, he provides markers for us, evidence that He is with us. And it may be times of, of blessing when we see that God is carrying us along in life. But, but even then, such times with Him, you know, while they're sweet, they're just a foretaste of what is coming. Brothers and sisters, the fullness is yet to come. Well, we will be with the Lord forever. And when we read the New Testament, we find out actually what the house is that he's talking about. In the Old Testament, it was the temple, because that's where God met with his people. But if you look at the book of Revelation, is there a temple in heaven? No, there's actually not. And because there's no need for a temple in heaven because the Lord God Almighty Himself is that temple where He will come and He will dwell with His people. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, will you dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Will I see you there in heaven? You know, some people might think, well, wow, that's rather presumptuous, Pastor Rick, to speak so boldly. But, you know, brothers and sisters, if we don't speak boldly, is that not a greater sin? I mean, if the Lord Jesus Christ has made atonement for my sin, if He has done so to reconcile me to the Father, to bring me into the sheepfold of the heavenly shepherd, it would be a great sin to say anything less than, I am my beloved's and He's mine. His banner over me is love. That is the glorious thing. And can you say that this morning with David, that the Lord the Almighty, the Everlasting God is my shepherd. If you can't, I want to talk to you after the worship service and share you the greatest news that you could ever hear.
But in closing, I want, I want to share something that someone in our congregation shared with me. It actually is a hymn by Isaac Watts, and it's based on Psalm 23. And I just want to leave you with the words of the third verse, okay? This is what Isaac Watts writes. He goes, Your sure provisions, gracious God, attend me all my days. Let me say it again. Your sure provisions, gracious God, attend me all of my days. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praise. Now hear these words. Here would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are as God's children. We are, we are His children, and we're right now walking this pilgrimage in this world, but one day we will be a child at home. No more labors, no more struggles, no more worries, no more battle with sin. But we will be in His presence to worship Him for all eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Please bow your heads with me if you would for a time of silence. Reflection. Thank you so much, God, for your wonderful grace. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful song that shows us from beginning to end that we are yours. Oh, God, I pray that you would strengthen us and rejoice and the truths that you share in this song, that we would receive them by faith and walk in them, even when the circumstances of our lives might want to, to say otherwise, that we would see your hand at work, Lord, your invisible hand of sovereignty, your wonderful hand of covenant love. Oh Lord, I pray for any that are listening to this message and they don't know you. Oh God, I pray that you would show them that their only hope is in you and that, Lord, that they would turn to you. We thank you, oh God, and pray these things in your name. Amen.